How did superpower competition and the Cold War affect writers in the decolonizing world? In the book *The Aesthetic Cold War*, Peter Kalini explores the various ways that rival states used cultural diplomacy and the political police to influence writers. In response, many writers from Africa, Asia, and the Caribbean, such as Chinua Achebe, Mokraj Anand, Eileen Chang, C.L.R. James, Alex Laguma, Doris Lessing, Gugi Watungo, and Woso Yinka, carved out a vibrant conceptual space of aesthetic non-alignment, imagining a different and freer future for their work. Thank you for tuning in to the Global Novel. I'm Claire Hennessy. With me today is the book's author Peter J. Kalini. Dr. Kalini is professor of English at the University of Kentucky. His books include *Cities of Affluence and Anger*, *Commonwealth of Letters*, and *Modernism in a Global Context*. Hi, Peter. Welcome to the Global Novel. Claire, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure talking with you. I've been an admirer of your podcast for a little while now since I became aware of it. Something that I can use not only for myself, for my students. So it's a real pleasure to to speak with you today about my book. That's very kind of you, Peter. It does mean a lot to us as we are striving to produce high quality content to make academic education and literature more accessible to the world. So, to、uh, begin with, how how did you get started on this fascinating project? Because for me, it's it's such an amazing work of intellectual history, right? And it surprisingly reveals this unknown history of a post-war ideological fight in which the、uh, U.S. and Soviet Union actually manipulated and influenced each of their literary productions. I started out with the fundamental question of how did the Cold War Um, especially the aesthetic rivalry between the United States and the Soviet Union during the High War- Cold War period, which was really dominated by arguments about the function and use of aesthetics. The U.S. Ha- and its cultural intermediaries had long been proponents of free expression, especially free expression in the arts, and they often accused the Soviet Union. Of being too interventionist,、um, telling writers what they could and couldn't say, the Soviet Union countered some of those claims by saying that writers had a responsibility the, to the state,、um, and they had a right to expect support from the state as well.、Uh, and they 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 countered some of those accusations by by saying that in the U.S. and in the capitalist countries more generally. Writers had the freedom to say what they want, but also the freedom to be ignored by the marketplace.、Um, Soviet、uh, cultural figures argued that writers in、uh, North America and other parts of Western Europe were too beholden to what consumers wanted and to what large capitalist book interests、uh, wanted. Um, in the cultural marketplace, so each side was making arguments about what、uh, was the function of aesthetics. To whom should writers be responsible? Did they have a responsibility to the state and to the the, constitu- the constituents of the state, or did they have a responsibility to publishers and their shareholders? So this was one of the key arguments of the Cold War. And I started out the project by wondering how did this argument affect. The development of writing in what was then the decolonizing world, sometimes called the third world, now we would call the global south. This was an argument raging between 
uh, cultural figures in the U.S. and Soviet Union, and very few people who studied literature from the global South had considered this question in any depth. Most writers and most scholars who studied writing from the decolonizing world thought overwhelmingly about the relationship between the decolonizing world and former imperialist uh, countries of Western Europe, such as England and France, and to a lesser extent, Portugal and Holland. Um, And very few writers and scholars had considered in any depth what the effect of the Cold War was. And this struck me as an interesting question because, of course, decolonization for much of the world happened at exactly the same time. It was coincidental with the Cold War, but not many scholars had considered the conjuncture of these two questions. Now, as I started doing my research on this topic, rather than do a thematic reading of literature, reading literary texts, novels and poems and plays and essays um, from the decolonizing world for signs of the Cold War, I decided that I would concentrate my efforts on the two areas where the actions of the U.S. and Soviet Union had affected the institutions and the development of literature in the global South. I'm thinking on the one hand of cultural diplomacy. So the U.S. and the Soviet Union from the 1940s through the late 1980s were involved with various cultural diplomacy programs, as I called them. These were book and magazine publishing schemes um, that targeted writers and audiences from the global south. Um, There were literary conferences, which I spend a great deal of time talking about in the book. There were radio programs. um, There were art tours. There were music concerts. There were libraries. There were magazines. There were translation schemes funded by the Soviet Union and United States that were featuring writers from the global south. So cultural diplomacy was one way that large states tried to influence writers from the global south to woo them through sponsorship, as it were. And the other obvious mechanism that large states used to influence writing from the global south during this period was through censorship and through monitoring of writers. Um, I talk a lot, I spend a lot of time in this book talking about how the FBI monitored writers from the Caribbean, especially. I talk about CLR James and Claudia Jones. I talk extensively about MI5's surveillance of Doris Lessing, as well as CLR James. MI5 is the domestic security service similar to the FBI in the United Kingdom. One major difference is that the MI5 also had a very large global network with which it was connected through imperial relationships. And I also spend a good deal of time in the latter half of the book talking about African writers who spent time in prison and what that experience. Like a lot of scholarly books, or at least the ones I've been involved with, it got started somewhat accidentally. I was at the Harry Ransom Center at the University of Texas in Austin. I was doing some archival research on a book called Commonwealth of Letters. And I was doing some research on a BBC radio program called Caribbean Voices. So as I was doing my research on this radio program, um, I was describing some of this research to some of the archivists there at the Harry Ransom Center because archivists always know things that researchers don't know. They know 
interesting things about their collections. They're extremely knowledgeable, and they can often open doors that you didn't even know existed as a researcher. So I was describing my research um, to some of the librarians there, and, and the woman I was speaking to said, ah, I need to set you up to talk with my colleague, a guy called Bob Taylor. Um, he's got some stuff that's going to be really interesting for you. I said, okay, sounds cool. Um, so the next day I met with, with this gentleman and he said, okay, have you ever heard of the transcription center or someone called Dennis Durden, the guy who ran the transcription center? And I said, nope, I've never heard of either. He said, well, the transcription center was started in the early 1960s in London and it was a radio recording studio and clearinghouse on African literature. He said, okay. And with a little twinkle in his eye, he said, and did you know that um, the CIA were the sponsors, the clandestine sponsors of the transcription center? And I said, whoa, hang on. Now you've got my attention. The CIA were sponsoring a radio recording studio and distribution center on African literature in particular and hosting interviews with Chinua Chebe and Vole Shuinka, Alex Laguma and all those guys. He said, yes, the CIA were the, were the people paying the bills. And I said, okay, now you've got my attention. What on earth were the CIA doing? Um, and he said, well, that's where my part of the, the story ends and yours begins. You're the academic, you're the researcher roll your sleeves up, get in the archives and figure out why the CIA were involved in African literature. So that's kind of where the project started. That's just amazing. It's also very mind-blowing for me to read from your book that W.E.B. Du Bois was monitored and censored by the U.S. government due to his socialist stance at the time, right? Could you talk more about how the U.S. government agencies, for example, the CIA, was involved and how CIA intervened in its global literary production and how this particular kind of intervention affects the intellectual's literary freedom? So one of the interesting features of U.S. involvement in the arts and literature during this period is that you have different wings or sections of the U.S. government operating more or less independently from one another, sometimes with very, very different interests. So we know the least in many ways about exactly what the CIA was up to because their records, with the exception of the records of the Congress for Cultural Freedom are not open to the public. The CIA has not opened up its records in any way that would allow us to scrutinize them. Through a, through a sort of lucky quirk, we do have the records of the Congress for Cultural Freedom um, because the CIA set it up as an independent nonprofit organization. And when the CIA withdrew its funding, all the records from this nonprofit um, eventually made their way to the University of Chicago's special collection where they, where they now are still. So we got lucky in many respects because the CIA doesn't normally open up its records. One of the interesting facts about the CIA's involvement in the arts is that um, they were very, very conscious of the U.S., having a very poor record internationally on race relations. 
So stories about racial discrimination in the Jim Crow South, for example, were exploited very mercilessly by the Soviet Union, who wanted to depict the Soviet Union as the natural ally and friends of people of color in the decolonizing world. And the CIA were very, very eager to counteract Soviet Union's influence in this area and contrast the influence of Jim Crow politics at home with what the CIA regarded as an enlightened and progressive attitude on questions of race internationally. So for example, in the Congress for Cultural Freedom, they were very, very steadfast in condemning the policies of the apartheid government, for instance, in South Africa, which practiced racial discrimination. And we know from other parts of U.S. foreign policy that the the U.S. was in many ways a Cold War ally of the South African apartheid government during this period. So the CIA acted sometimes semi-autonomously, I'll say, from what other parts of the U.S. government were doing. Um, The State Department had its own agenda in the context of uh, CL, uh, sorry, not CLR James, but W.E.B. Du Bois's career, um, the C, the uh, the FBI um, had recommended that uh, W.E.B. Du Bois not be granted a passport; that his passport be withheld, and the State Department largely agreed with that. And Du Bois had his passport suspended for many years. Um, during the 1940s, and he protested against this uh, using legal means as well as using public relations. And a, an interesting thing changed in the latter part of the 1950s. Du Bois was invited to address an international arts and literature conference um, in Paris in 1956, the, the Présence Africaine Conference, the first Congress of Black Writers and Artists hosted at the Sorbonne in 1956. And Du Bois was invited to be a keynote speaker at that conference, and he couldn't attend because his passport request had been denied. Um, And he wrote a telegram instead. Um, And the effect of the telegram was saying to the audience that I'd like to show up at your conference and address you. But the fact of the matter is the U.S. government is muzzling me and won't let me go abroad and speak my mind. And so the lesson that you should learn as Black intellectuals and artists and writers is that any African-Americans who are allowed to travel abroad are towing the party line in the U.S. And because I have the courage to speak against it, they're not allowing me to travel. Well, this was highly embarrassing for the U.S. government. Everybody who was in that audience, writers, artists, and intellectuals, immediately connected the dots as, as Du Bois had asked them to do. And this, this, was, this looked like an act of racial discrimination as well as political censorship. So the U.S. government engaged in an interesting U-turn. Between 1956, when he his passport was still suspended, and 1958, when he was invited to be a keynote speaker at the first Afro-Asian Writers Association conference, that's the Soviet cultural diplomacy mechanism, um, 
That was in 1958 in Tashkent, Uzbekistan, which is part of Central Asia, then part of the Soviet Union. Du Bois's passport had been reinstated and he was able to travel to that conference. And this was partly because of the pressure, uh, the international pressure that was created by Du Bois um, having the appearance of being censored and having his movements restricted because of his race and his political uh, sensibilities. So the opinions of Black writers and artists writers and artists from the decolonizing world mattered enough to the U.S. government at this point that they could be forced into a very embarrassing U-turn over the case of W.E.B. Du Bois. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll add one more thing quickly to your answer, and that is the FBI. So you've got the CIA doing some things, the State Department doing other things, and then you've got the FBI, which are the domestic uh, political police in the U.S. in the 1950s. They had a very aggressive monitoring policy um, where they were keeping tabs on all Black writers and intellectuals during this period. My colleague who teaches at the Washington University in St. Louis, William Maxwell, has got a great book about this, um, about the, the effect of the FBI on African writers, uh, in particular called FBI's. And um, it makes an extensive case um, by looking at the FBI archives, the dossiers that they collected on African-American writers. What was an interesting feature of the FBI's monitoring program during this period is it also had a profound effect on Global South writers, especially Black writers who came to the United States. So one uh, effect of the Cold War is that uh, Afro-Caribbean writers such as C.L.R. James and Claudia Jones, whom I discuss in the book, they spent time in the United States. They were spied on by the FBI very extensively. They were both held captive um, on Ellis Island. Um, Claudia Jones spent time in a federal prison. Both were deported and both went to the United Kingdom after their deportation, where they were spied on by MI5 as well. Um, so this was part of the, the kind of monitoring apparatus that I talk about um, at great length in, in, this, in this project. Right. And the other kind of governmental influence is through endorsing writers, according to your book. Do you know, Peter, it's such a great surprise for me to learn that the Chinese writer Eileen Chang was once endorsed by the U.S. government. It's interesting because seldom do we question the background of how these transnational writers made their names in the U.S., right? Yeah. So I think this is why your, your book is so fascinating through debunking governmental activities behind these yeah. writers' fame and success. Um, and according to what you wrote, after having a good start of her career from Shanghai, Chang was offered an ideal literary refuge by the United States because... That she, uh, because of the fact that she was previously denied a, a national audience uh, due to her inclinations towards the Japanese, who were, and still are, by the way, considered by the majority of the Chinese people as the biggest moral enemy. Yeah. So yeah. at that time in the U.S., even though her feminist motifs would resonate with middle-brow audiences primed to accept Asian literature, Chang finally did not make it to international fame. 
I wonder if you could talk more on in what ways the soft power of the U.S. failed to lead to the recognition of decolonizing writers such as Eileen Chang. Yeah, so there, there are a couple of interesting contrasts to be brought um, to the fore where the case of Chang is concerned. So if you compare her to a writer and intellectual such as C.L.R. James, the contrast is really striking and obvious. So their careers overlapped. Um, C.L.R. James is older than Eileen Chang for sure, but they um, both spent time at roughly the same time in the United States. So just as C.L.R. James is being kicked out of the United States, being hounded out of the country by the FBI um, and sent sent into to exile, if you like, from the, the, the United States. Um, we hope you have enjoyed this episode so far. If you desire to complete the entire episode, you can subscribe at theglobalnovel.com slash subscribe. Thank you so much for listening.